So we're going to be there in last chapter of 1 Peter. Uh, I ask you, uh, every time I guess, I'd like you to turn there. And I do think it helps you to uh, get more out of the lesson when you look at it in your own Bible. Glad you're here. Appreciate so much uh, your presence. Uh, welcome you again. Uh, I want to mention just a word about tonight, you know, as we've uh, changed up some about the way we do our Sunday nights. Um, just a word about that. Before Sunday, you may remember we presented a couple months ago a plan for... Uh, us to spend time at home with families, perhaps in a home with Christian friends, uh, working on our relationships with one another and with the Lord, and provide a video devotional for you. And uh, so that will be provided for you tonight. Hope you will feel comfortable uh, getting online and getting together with some friends or with your family at home and, and um, watching that devotional. Uh, Brother Harold, uh, in just a few minutes after the sermon at the end of our service, one of our elders is going to make some announcements, and he's also going to mention, I believe, that there will be a uh, gathering here of um, some folks for a Bible study if you would prefer to come to the building this evening at 5 o'clock. But Harold will say more about that in just, uh, in just a few minutes. <clears throat> I, am, uh, I wonder if I ask you, don't answer this out loud, but do you ever struggle with anxiety? Do you ever struggle with anxiety? Do you ever have just this sense of unease, this, uh, this feeling that things aren't going to work out right. You ever, you ever struggle with that? Do you ever struggle with pride? I think probably to those two questions, do you struggle with anxiety, do you struggle with pride, um, there would probably be, I don't, I don't know, I may be wrong on this, but, but I think there would probably be more folks who would answer affirmatively to the first than to the second. That, yes, I do sometimes struggle with anxiety, mm, not so much with pride. You know, I know other people who do, but, but I don't struggle with it quite as much. I think that at least that's a human inclination, kind of a tendency to say, yeah, I do struggle with, with this, but, but not so much with that. We're coming to the end of the study, and I think it's clear that Peter's audience struggled with anxiety. I think they knew that. I don't think they knew that that anxiety is actually rooted in pride. It's actually, it's actually rooted in, in an emphasis, in, in a belief in the sufficiency of self. That's where anxiety comes from. And it's a, a, a lack of dependency or a lack of awareness of one's dependency on God. We'll get there in just a few minutes, but we're going to focus our time on these seven uh, these uh, six verses here in, um, in 1 Peter 5. We, uh, what I'm about to say could be said at any time in history, I know. And there's always this pressure to think that the moment that we're in is worse or better. It's different than all the moments before our time and perhaps the moments that are to come. But it is certainly true, and I think we feel this as a church and we feel it individually, that we live in uncertain times. There are things that are changing. It seems we feel this, this drift in our country, perhaps, a, a drift towards secularism, a drift away from a conviction in any kind of a public way that God exists or that there is some sort of ethic, there's some sort of morality that's rooted in the, uh, the, the, the creation of this world by a sovereign and supreme God. You know? And so I think that creates, sometimes it creates anxiety in us. We've experienced things in the last year and a half that have heightened that sense of unease, that, that sense of anxiety and fear and perhaps dread, that, that there are things going on in the world around us and the consequent division and anger 
that have flowed from that, flown from that, you know, that, that we think, mm, this doesn't, this is not going the way that I wish it was. And we, we feel this sense in us that something isn't what it ought to be. Peter's folks were feeling that too. Things were changing for them. People were starting to not like Christians. They were starting to make it difficult. I mentioned this time or two in the series, you know, things were going on in that part of the world where these Christians lived, where it was becoming increasingly clear that you're going to have to do something as far as your engagement in public if you're going to make it, because they had these guilds. I think I mentioned this two or three weeks ago, these guilds, these like trade guilds, where if you are, um, you know, you're a Mason, for example, that if you wanted to engage in business in your village, in your city, you had to be a member of the, of the Guild of Masons, right? And yet a part of those guilds, it had gotten to a point now, a part of these guilds was that you had to acknowledge your belief, at least give lip service to the existence of the, of the pantheon of gods, you know? You had to, you had to uh, give your allegiance to Caesar as God. That was something that, that crept up, that, that got worse as the century went on. And Christians were starting to feel this pressure, like how am I going to be a mason, for example? How am I going to support my family? I cannot burn a pinch of incense. I cannot give my allegiance to Caesar as God. I cannot say that I believe in these gods. I cannot do that because I believe in one God, and that is Yahweh, right? And so they were feeling this pressure. And they're, they're struggling. What do we need to do? And so Peter's talking to them about anxiety. But he begins here, or at least right in the middle of this text. I think there's a focal point here in the middle of this passage that Matthew read for us a few minutes ago where he points our attention to the roaring lion, the devil. Let's talk about the devil for a minute. I'm not going to dwell here, really only to say a couple of things. We live in an enlightened age. <clears throat> we live in a time where most people still believe in good supernatural personal beings. Most people believe in God in some sense, a personal God. But the number is decreasing who believe in evil supernatural personal beings. You ask many people if they believe in God, and most people will say, yeah, I do believe in God. You ask those same people, do you believe in the devil? Do you believe in Satan as a real, personal, supernatural being who exists to wreak havoc in the world? And there are going to be a lot of folks, or at least, at least a lower number of people who say, I believe in that, who believe also in God. And yet, when we read Scripture, as far as Christians, I'm not speaking to the world here really, but speaking to us, uh, you can't really go to Scripture and say, I believe in God and don't believe in Satan. It, that, that option's not available. It's, Peter talks about it. Uh, Paul talks about Satan. Uh, more than anyone else in the New Testament, Jesus talks about Satan, speaking about him as if he's real. He is legitimate. He is evil. He is a personal. He is a supernatural being, and he is wreaking havoc in the world. I, I, I don't think I need to spend a lot of time there because I think probably maybe everybody in this room Maybe everybody online, I don't know. But most of us at least believe this already. But I, I want to kind of establish this foundation at the beginning of this, that if you believe the Bible, if you, if you call yourself a person of faith, a person who's a Christian, then you also have to believe in the, in the, in the devil as a real, personal, evil, supernatural being who works in the world. I have to believe that. Well, I can't pick and choose what I believe. That I, I want to I take the good and I want to not believe in the bad, I really can't have that option. That, that's not available. There's, there's really no like, ambiguity in the Bible about this. He, he just is. And so when, when Peter speaks about him here in verse 8, 
Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's speaking about a being who, who exists and who's working. A couple of, couple of things here that happen with uh, belief in Satan. And C.S. Lewis in his book, uh, The Screwtape Letters, I believe it's in the introduction where he talks about this, that there are two reactions to the devil that are unhealthy. <clears throat> and one of them is to be superstitious about the devil. And that is what he would call overbelief, super, superstitious about the devil. And that is it's kind of this thinking that that Satan is, that everything is of Satan, that he is uh, almost omnipotent, that he is, he is everywhere, and there is, uh, I need like some sort of magical incantation. I need a priest to do an exorcism over me. It's that, it's seeing the fingerprints of Satan on everything and in every, everywhere. And it's like an overbelief in him and his power, and that there's nothing that we can do really to resist him. We need to lean on something supernatural as like a magical incantation or, or an exorcism or something like that. So you've got that kind of thing. You see that in some quarters of American society. Then what C.S. Lewis also says is that a second response to the devil is what he calls substitious. And that is, as you would guess by the prefix there, that it's, it's, it's under-believing in him. It is believing in him like you see him in, you know, uh, popularly portrayed on TV and movies or cartoons. He's this almost like a fictitious character uh, with a pitchfork, and he is pr pretty harmless, you know. He really doesn't exist, and if he does exist, it's not that big of a deal. It's, it's that kind of substitious belief, this underbelief in him that, that disregards him in the world. And I, I, I was thinking about this this week. I wonder where we would be. If, if we're in this, on the spectrum somewhere, which we must be, are, are we people who lean toward the superstitious end of this, are the substitutious end of this? And I don't know the answer to that. I don't know where you would be, where I would be on this. Um, probably, if I, if I were guessing here, I would say our tendency would be to lean toward the substitutious end of this. That is, that we do believe he is. We believe in Satan, theoretically. Intellectually, we believe he's, he's around. But we don't really, we don't really consciously believe that he's doing that much personally in our lives, perhaps, or that he and his minions are, you know? I don't, I don't know that that's true, and maybe you can wrestle with that a little bit on your own to think which one you struggle with, kind of sliding toward one end of that, end of that spectrum or the other. But here's what I want you to, I want you to know. Without a full-blown like, discussion of Satan's origins and all that, the Bible simply acknowledges that he is that he is supremely evil, he wants to hurt and devour you, and he will do anything within his power, God limits him, but he will do anything within his power to hurt and divide and conquer and maim and destroy. And when we look, I mean, we look at our own context here, it is, I hope you see this, it is increasingly evident to see how he has worked in our environment, in the past 18 months. Isn't it clear that he has taken COVID and he has used it to hurt a lot of people? Certainly, and I think uh, one commentator I was reading on this First uh, Peter 5 text said that um, 
in this text, he thinks primarily what Peter's talking about is Satan is hurting people physically. And so persecution in Peter's context here, he is hurting people physically. So certainly it is the case that Satan has used and is using COVID to hurt people, to bring people um, to, as far as their health is concerned, bring them to the physical death. And he has gotten a lot of people sick and he has used that to hurt people physically, right? And still is. But beyond that, you think of what else he's done with that. How he has used it to bring about division and anger and hate and animosity among people. He's even used it to infiltrate his church all over the world in ways that have, that have hurt and, and hurt our influence and, and maybe caused us to have wrong emphases and we haven't responded as, as well as we should in many ways perhaps. And Satan is using that to hurt. And so I, I think you don't have to go too far. I mean, you, and Sid was praying about this um, a minute ago. Um, you, th- you think about what he's doing in, in Afghanistan, in, in Haiti, in, in uh, certain parts of the world and, uh, where there's, there's um, persecution of Christians. I mean, you, you can go anywhere and you can see his hand. I, I just want you to think about that for just a minute. Let's not, let's not simply go as our secular environment would cause us to, to, to look for secular causes and secular solutions. That the causes are physical, the causes are poor education, the causes are political, uh, are systemic, or whatever, and, and therefore the solutions are going to be physical, or they're going to be political, or, or, or whatever. You see what I'm getting at? But rather, as Christians, we see beneath the secular surface, beneath the superficial And we see that underlying the things that are going on in the world are the influences of Satan. He's doing this. He's dividing, and he is destroying, and he is hurting. And so the response to that is not going to be political. It's not going to be civil solutions. It's not going to be, now, obviously, you know, caveat here. God can use political solutions. God can use um, medical solutions. God can work through a lot of different ways. But as Christians, we want to look beneath the surface and recognize the supernatural work of Satan in the world to bring about his goal, which is destroy, to destroy us and to hurt God. We've got to acknowledge that, I think, as Christians. And so when Peter says this in verse 8 here, be sober-minded, be watchful. I mean, that's reading the headlines and not just reading it as a secular Western person. Not just, not just reading the newspaper or scrolling through your news feed on your phone and thinking about, well, what would fix this is maybe a better political solution or what would fix this is better education or, or more money if we put it here. But rather to recognize what you're seeing with many of the negative headlines is you're seeing the work of Satan. And so the response to that is we join hands with God in doing what God is doing to oppose those forces of evil. Right? So that's what Christians do. It's a worldview that reads the headlines and sees the negativity in the world and sees it for what it is. It's not merely a lack of education. It's not merely poor political choices or appointees or whatever, but rather it is Satan having his way. And we can respond to that by joining hands with God. Okay, so just, just to acknowledge here in verse 8, Peter says the devil is real and he is hurting and he is maiming and destroying how does he how does he work i mentioned these two things earlier look in uh, look in your bible again uh, 
We left off last week at the end of verse 5 where it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then verse 6 where we began today. God, um, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. Then verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him. And then verse 8, watch out for the devil. Now, you know that when the Bible talks about the devil, it, uh, it, it's going to usually talk about the devil in the context of where he's working and how he's working. And this is no exception. For example... Paul talks about this in Ephesians 4 when he says to uh, let not the sun go down on your wrath. Give no opportunity to the devil. Give no place to the devil. In Ephesians 4, what Paul is saying is that anger is one of those footholds. He is saying you got to watch out for the work of Satan. And specifically in that context, he says that foothold, that way that he works is through your anger. He uses it in 1 Timothy 3 when he's talking about the appointing of elders and deacons. And he, he says that you don't need to appoint a man as an elder to the office of elder who is a novice, who is um, not mature in his faith. Why? Because the devil will take advantage of that. So the devil works in the world, but he doesn't just work generally. He, does, he can't do anything to you against your will. He, he doesn't just work in some sort of ambiguous kind of, um, I don't know, hard to pinpoint way. He works through specific footholds. Now get this. Hope you'll remember this part. He works in your life by focusing on those things that you're struggling with. In our text here, Paul in Ephesians 4 says anger. Uh, Paul in 1 Timothy 3 says immaturity in the faith. But here in our text, he says two things, okay? He works in churches and in Christians' lives in the areas of pride and anxiety. Pride and fear. Both of these are closely related. We'll talk about them a little bit more. Pride and anxiety. So I asked you the question a few minutes ago, are you a person who struggles with anxiety? Most of us, I think, not everybody, but a lot of us would have to say, yeah, sometimes I do. And some of us would have to say, yeah, I do quite a lot, you know, quite a bit. It's, it's really a, a, an ongoing struggle for me. Second question, do you struggle with pride? Uh, I think if we're being honest here, and we're being really, really uh, clear thinking and sober-minded and self-reflective here, most of us would also have to say, yeah, I do struggle with pride sometimes because I, you know... Uh, I, I, like, I like to get my way, you know, I like things to be about me, I, I like, um, I think that maybe I'm, I'm a little bit, um, I, I can see things more clearly than the next person, you know, that, that sort of thing. So, anxiety and pride. See, what Peter is saying here is this is the way he's going to work in churches and this is the way he's going to work in your life, specifically here in 1 Peter 5, anxiety and pride. So let's talk about it for a minute. And these two are related very closely. <clears throat> Now, anxiety. Let's talk about that for, for a couple minutes. Um, and I think I preached a sermon on this maybe a year or so ago, a couple years ago, um, about anxiety. Because you know what anxiety is? Anxiety is not trusting in God to do things the way that he sees fit to do them. That's, that's really what anxiety is for a Christian. It's believing that I, don't, I can't control this. And, and I, I think God's in control, but I'm, I'm not sure he's in control. And if he is in control, I'm a little bit worried about how he's going to work this out. Anxiety is pride in a different form. It is pride because it says, I've got to be in control. 
I want to be able to control how the situation works out. And, and so we get the MRI report, and we, we are filled with anxiety. Why? Because we lost control, as if we had control before we got the report, you know, or before they did it, you know, six months ago or a year ago or whatever. And so we struggle with anxiety because we feel like we've lost control. We, 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 and, and truth is, we have lost control because we never had it in the first place. Who has control? God's the one who's in control, but my anxiety is up or down based on my belief in the, in the sovereignty of God, in what God is doing. And so when Peter talks here about anxieties, what he's, he's getting to is he's getting really to this thing called pride. And that is this lack of trust in God and overconfidence in my own ability to control different scenarios and how things are going to work out. So his... Really, really, this, this, this last part here, this is, what, this is how the gospel addresses him. But he says in verse 7, Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Back up in verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Back up to verse 5, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You see, throughout this passage, Peter is saying that the solution here is giving ourselves wholly, wholeheartedly, fully, totally to God. That's the solution. Now, I think you probably agree with that, but you probably want to think, and I do as well, hmm, how do I do that? I mean, I want to do that, but I don't always do that, you know? You may notice in verse 6, he uses this expression, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. If you were to Google it or look up in your concordance on your Bible software or whatever, the mighty hand of God, you're going to see a lot of references to Exodus 3, or if you're looking up cross-references, you know? Mighty hand of God. You know what happened in Exodus 3 and, and on in the chapters that follow? This is the mighty hand of God. This kind of language is used all over the book of Exodus and it goes through the story of God sending Moses down to Egypt and God working, of course, through Moses' leadership, but working supernaturally in the land of Egypt to bring his people out of persecution and bondage to freedom. That's Exodus 3 and beyond, right? So the mighty hand of God, that background of that phrase, is in the book of Exodus. And so I think what, what Peter's wanting his, his hearers, his readers, to, uh, to think about is, look, yeah, you know, it, it, it feels kind of, you feel kind of helpless when you see the Roman Empire turning against you. That's a pretty helpless feeling in, in the year 63 or so. I mean, the Roman Empire's turning against you? Yeah, that's pretty scary. I mean, Roman Empire's, a, Roman Empire's strong at this point. Really strong. Caesar is strong. These local tribunals, they are people of power. And for a young, fledgling movement of Christians to feel the wrath of the Roman Empire and it had its fingers everywhere, that is a quite helpless feeling. You and I might feel that way. We see our culture turning against any semblance of connection to the Judeo-Christian faith, ethics, morality. We see pressure increasing on Christians to compromise on certain matters of doctrine or belief, whether it's matters of what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about marriage and family and sexuality, what we believe, believe about a whole host of things. We're feeling this pressure, and we sense that things are turning, and they're, they're turning against us, and that's kind of a helpless feeling. You think about 
Israel, in Egypt, Pharaoh, Egypt. I mean, they were incredibly powerful. Incredibly powerful. Helpless feeling for the Israelites. They were slaves, making bricks. They had nothing. They had nothing. They didn't have education. They didn't have military ability. They didn't have strength in any way the world recognized it. But throughout the chapters, starting in Exodus 3 and on to the deliverance, Exodus 13 and 14, what you have is this expression, the mighty hand of God. And so when Egypt turns against you, what hope do you have? You don't have any hope unless the mighty hand of God is supporting you. What happens when the Roman Empire turns against you and your fledgling movement of Christians? What, what do you have? What hope do you have? You don't have any hope unless you have the mighty hand of God supporting you. What hope do we have in a secular world today? And the answer is, we don't have any hope apart from the mighty hand of God that supports us. That's what he's talking about when he says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. He is saying, this is not you. This is not in your control. We have all these anxieties and they're rooted in pride because these anxieties are like, I've got to fix this. I've got to control this. I've got to do something. I got, we, we, the church, we've got to do something. We've got to do something big. And Peter, speaking for God, says, what you need to do is you need to be humble. You need to humble yourself. You don't have any control. You don't have any power. Yeah, you're not going to fix this. You're not going to fix a broken world. Are you kidding me? Of course you're not. Here's what you do. You clothe yourselves. Talked a little bit about that last Sunday. Get dressed up in humility. Let it be what people see when they see you. I mean, this is, you, you, you clothe yourself and it means you're covered up with it. Humility is not like one thing on your list here. You know, well, I need to be humble. I need to be these other things. What Peter's saying here is, this is what you need to be. This needs to define who you are. So you get dressed up in humility, all of you. Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then he says, you humble yourself, therefore, to the mighty hand of God. And, see, and, and then, so the mighty hand of God, verse 6, and your adversary, the devil, uh, who's a roaring lion, in, in verse 8, who wins that battle. Mighty hand of God, supernatural, personal, evil being who does a lot of bad on the other hand. Mighty hand of God, the roaring lion. Mighty hand of God, the roaring lion. I wonder who wins that one. See what Peter's saying, you know, the answer to that. What Peter's saying to us is, you humble yourselves under him and you submit to him. And then, and then, Verse 10, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. On that final day, every, God, he doesn't say God's going to fix everything now. He doesn't say that. But he says God will ultimately, he will ultimately be vindicated. That's the story of the Bible really. I think I've used this illustration before, but I love this, especially when we're talking about God and Satan. Remember that one of my favorite scenes in The Lion King from years ago, that scene where Simba, he's a cub at this point, and he wants to go. He's not supposed to go there, but he goes to the elephant graveyard. Remember this? He's there, and uh, the hyenas come after him, you know. 
And uh, you, remember, you remember that scene where the hyenas are encircling him, and he responds with a roar, and it's a cub roar, and they laugh at him. Remember that? They're like, you, you, think, you think you're going to oppose us? And then he really musters, if I remember right, he really musters up his strength, and he gets, he's going to go down deep for this next roar. And he comes out with a roar, and it is just a gigantic roar, you know, that come from the depths of the earth. Remember that? And they, they run. They flee. You remember this? And, of course, if you, if you remember this scene, what happened is his father, the king, was behind him. And it was his roar coming forth when Simba thought he was scaring them off, you know? I often think of that scene when I think of this in our response to the devil. It is, we are to resist. I, Peter says that in verse 9. Resist him, firm in your faith. This is not something we just say, well, I'm, I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to curl up over here in, in a fetal position and, and, uh, and, and hope maybe God does something. No, that's not what it is. Somehow, in God's sovereignty and in his omniscience, God has chosen to work through our feeble efforts, but he does work through them. And so we, like Simba, we muster up every bit of strength that we've got. Whatever roar comes out of our mouths will be pretty feeble, to be honest. But it will scare Satan off because of the one who stands behind us, because of the mighty hand of God. Resist him, James says in a parallel passage. James says, resist him and he will flee from you. Why? Not because of you. Not because of me. We ain't got anything but the one behind us. The mighty hand of God, his roar will come forth and Satan runs from that. But we resist firm in our faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by our brotherhood throughout the world. And, and, and I appreciate Sid's mentioning that in his prayer of believers in Afghanistan, in China or North Korea or different parts of uh, the Middle East, of believers in Haiti who are suffering now, and believers all over the world who are suffering, many of them suffering because of persecution. And so in, in some sense, though we, we need to thank God for His protection to this point, but if it gets to a point where we too experience suffering because of persecution, we join hands with brothers and sisters all over the world because we confess the same Savior and we are suffering in some small way on his behalf, knowing that it is God's dominion forever and ever, amen, that all things will be vindicated on that final day. And so where does our anxiety, where does our pride go? Which those are the same. Different manifestations. Same underlying problem here is pride. It's an over-reliance on self, it's overconfidence in self, or sometimes an underconfidence a lack of confidence in self, because I think I ought to be in control and I recognize I don't, that brings about anxiety. That's pride. But the solution is, with the gospel of Christ, we understand that God is working in the world and that God has already won the battle. He's already won the victory. It's, it's, the end is not in doubt here. Satan is in his death throes and God has been vindicated at the resurrection. It'll be visible to all on that final day. He's already won. And so our response is to submit to God and let God work 
through us and work however God chooses to work to bring about this ultimate vindication. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The last imperative in verse 14, peace to all of you who are in Christ. That only comes, that only comes to us when we are truly wrapped up in Christ. Because if we're dependent on things going our way in the world, we'll never have peace. If our hope is bound up in in, in keeping score as the world keeps score, then we're not going to have any hope. Our peace and our hope will only be when we are wrapped up fully in Christ. If you're not a Christian this morning, we would love for you to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Submit your life, your heart to Jesus to, to say today, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of trying to do this thing myself. Recognize you don't have control and you turn it over to Him. That's what being a Christian is. That's, that's what it means to give your heart and life totally to Him. You just demonstrate that publicly in baptism. Your sins washed away. You're wrapped up, buried with Jesus Christ. Your identity is from, from then and forevermore wrapped up in who He is and not, not who you are. Uh, maybe you're ready to do that today, and we would be thrilled to uh, help you in your obedience. Maybe you need to ask for prayers from the church family here. We'll pray for you. Let's stand and sing. If you need to respond, I hope you'll come now.